Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Alberta's new Premier, Danielle Smith, has walked back her comments about the unvaccinated. This happened just after she received major backlash. But has the damage already been done? Elon Musk denies speaking with Vladimir Putin before his controversial tweet about a Ukraine-Russian peace plan. Marcus Kolga, the director of DisinfoWatch and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, will join us to talk about that. And Canada and Japan have launched talks aimed at sharing military intelligence. What kind of implications will that have? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we know, Danielle Smith has now been sworn in as Alberta's new premier. And at a news conference, uh, Smith says that people who are not vaccinated for COVID-19 have been the most discriminated group she has ever met and ever seen in her lifetime. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. Well, uh, that kind of comment, of course, drew some immediate response, and obviously from a number of groups, uh, such as Indigenous groups and others, that said, really, <laughs> the most discriminated against, including, by the way, British Columbia Premier John Horgan, who uh, is deriding the comments made by Danielle Smith, uh, suggesting that unvaccinated people were the most discriminated against in her lifetime. Uh, Horgan spoke at a radio interview on CFAX Radio in Victoria, and here's what he had to say. Uh, it's laughable, uh, quite frankly. Uh, we collectively, not just British Columbians and Canadians, but the global community has just gone through an unprecedented time. Nothing uh, like this in over 100 years, going back to the Spanish influenza. Uh, let's get some reaction to uh, Smith's comments and, and a few other things that are happening, of course, on the federal scene. And uh, to do that, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad, of course, is a senior consultant uh, for Crestview Strategies. Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me back. Let's uh, talk with Premier Smith now and her comments. Uh, uh, as I mentioned in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning, uh, the uh, everything's wrong with Alberta is, El is Ottawa's fault. is not a new card. Just about every Alberta Premier has played that, I think, since they joined the Confederation. Uh, but it was not that so much. We'll get into some of her energy policies in just a second. Uh, but this uh, this shot about, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-vaxxers, those who refuse to get vaccinated, uh, the most discriminative people she's ever seen in her lifetime. Uh, she's is this is this political rhetoric? Uh, is, is what was the intention of saying something like that? And certainly the fallback has been uh, enormous. Well, it's. Uh a big head scratcher when one claims that unvaccinated people are the most discriminated that she's ever seen. I'm like, well, have you been outside and talked to other people who are people of color, indigenous, uh, and people who are from the LGBTQ community? Like there are a number of people who have been historically severely discriminated against in this country, uh, and still are. Uh, so it's, it was, I'm glad people immediately called her out and she and me then started an apology to her, uh, immediately after that, knowing that she just, uh, opened a can of worms. Now it's not shocking that she made the statement. She has played to that base. She is from the far right, uh, of the conservative party, particularly in, in from the UCP. Uh, she's further right than Jason Kenney is. Um, and that's the base that really got excited about her. Uh, she she is she comes from and she's always been uh, an opponent of anything of a vaccine mandate or encouraging vaccines. It's 
she's strictly opposed that, and that's her base. And you know, this is this is also a pre-election attempt for you know Alberta is going to go to the polls next year, and uh, she wants to get everyone on side that uh, this is who she is, and that's what she wants to to preach. She's you know going to have significant changes made to the Alberta Health Services uh, to to reflect how she feels about how health services should be delivered, which should you know cause a, should leave a positive concern for Albertan residents uh, to see that someone who just got elected as leader from a party of about you know a few tens of a few tens of thousands of people to represent about five million people uh, to uh, make significant changes like that. Uh, yeah, you, you talked about the changes she wants to make to the healthcare system. I guess the the first one that she talked about is firing the uh, the chief medical officer in Alberta uh, for the way that she said she mishandled situations. I, I I get the sense just listening to some of her comments, and I you're absolutely right. I mean that's her political background, uh, but she seemed oblivious to the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic, and it was the medical experts that were talking about you know shutting things down, etc. Uh, and but I guess that's not what her people want to hear. And you know, her your point's well taken. The next election in Alberta is not till next year. Uh, she was asked, member, after she won the leadership, Mohammed, uh, are you going to call a snap election? And her response to that was very telling. She says, "No, I might lose if I did." Uh, so she's she you knows she has some work to do to try to win in a general election. Uh, so maybe this is really step one in in that process for her. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's also a misstep because she quickly learned that like the role of being a premier of a province is different than just simply being a radio TV show host or the representative of the of a backbench party when she was the wild with the wild rose. This is a completely different arena. You're representing people, and you really have uh, control over like how people feel safe, protected, how they get their services from government or from whomever. Uh, she is getting a reality check rapidly. Uh, this might see her moderate certain elements, uh, just like she and she will have to pull back on some of the more controversial stuff, such as the Sovereignty Act, which she's already pulling back on. So, um, you know, th- this is this is case in point what she's like, uh, and I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. What we'll have to see is how she plans to sort of navigate this delicate balance of trying to rapidly make changes ahead of an election where she needs to put forth like, hey, this is what I can do. This is what I'm doing already. Well, obviously this went over like a lead balloon, but uh, I mean, some of her other comments in her opening uh, uh, media conference uh, did resonate, I think, with Albertans. And I mean, you know, the, a sure winner anytime you the Alberta premier is to talk about uh, energy and uh, and the federal government's approach towards energy. And, and there were some legitimate points. I mean, uh, she was asked if she was going to get along with the federal government, and specifically with the prime minister, and said basically, uh, I'll paraphrase, as long as he stays in his lane and we stay in ours, we should be just fine. Uh, not respecting the fact that uh, the federal government does have some say, of course, in national energy policies uh, by definition. Uh, so I, I get the sense, Mohammed, there's going to be a lot of headbutting here going on in the next little while. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, this goes back to my even earlier point about just posturing for an election. Jason Kenney did no different. Uh, other premiers have done no different. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in Saskatchewan and others where they uh, are going to butt heads with the prime minister. This and, and it works for them. They find that it works that you can continue to paint Ottawa the enemy uh, and, and play out the Western alienation uh, card and, and they can uh, find political support from that. So it's a bit of a two-prong. And, and you know, she's not 
particularly changing the tone that was set by Jason Kenney when he won about fighting back against uh, the federal government. Now, what she is saying and planning to do, she's going to fall in the same mistakes and uh, cycles of, of, of losses in the sense that she wants to go again and challenge the carbon tax. Well, the Supreme Court has already determined that it's constitutional. So revisiting this once again is, is foolhardy and a waste of time. And also, Jason Kenney was super pro-energy. What is she going to do something different? That is not clear, and she's going to have to clearly articulate that where it's great to put all the rhetoric out there that you're going to defend Alberta's natural resources, which are also Canada's resources. What are you going to do different than Jason Kenney? Jason Kenney also bought part of a pipeline that he now can't sell because it will never get built, which is supposed to go to the U.S. So what exactly is, is uh, she going to be able to put forth? Um, what is she going to be a differentiator in this? Because she also needs to contend with the, a resurgent NDP in that province uh, has a legitimate shot at winning. Like Rachel Nolly has a legitimate shot at winning. She's also pro-energy. So how do you really define that like the UCP are the best positioned party to lead the, the province after a disastrous pandemic response and an inability to get resources to market? And now what's the, what's the plan going forward? So she really needs to contend with how she's going to have a clear message of why she is preferred choice for voters when they come to an election next year. And your point about Rachel Nathalie, I think, is, is very germane to this discussion, too. I mean, everybody was surprised years ago when the NDP got elected and Notley became the premier. And, and then, of course, along came Jason Kennedy and say, look, we, we, we need to get back to our values. Well, uh, she was significantly ahead of Kenny in the polls before he announced his resignation. Uh, so she, as you mentioned, she is a factor. She's a known commodity. Uh, and it pro-energy nonetheless, even with their NDP stripes. So that, that's going to be a very interesting election next year, which is maybe one of the reasons why Smith is is posturing the way that she has. Uh, and she did touch on the energy button, of course, too, saying that Canada uh, is going to have to you know, help get these things to go. And one of the key elements of that she brought up, which I think is a legitimate concern, Mohammed, was uh, the, the liquid national ga- natural gas. Uh, and the prime minister essentially telling the German chancellor that, no, there's no business case for this. Uh, the prime ministers received a lot of pushback on that, and it seems as if the federal government might be rethinking that right now, suggesting that maybe we do have to get uh, these energy projects to our allies. Uh, there'll be a premium to pay, but I don't think the German chancellor is concerned about that. So there, there's there's some, I think, some opportunity here for Smith to cooperate with the federal government, or she can continue just to be adversarial, and uh, who knows how that's going to impact policy going forward. Yeah, look, I think you used the, the key word is... Uh, work together and and not be adversarial. Um, if the more you continue to be adversarial, it's like look at Scott Moe's, uh, you're not going to get anything out of the prime minister to, to work with him. Like the prime minister also wants to work with provinces. He's been very uh, clear about that. But at the end of the day, the provinces also need to meet him halfway on some stuff and continue just to fixate on one issue that's already sort of been put to bed you know from the carbon from the carbon tax side of things but like look yeah lng fair comments we do need to get our energy uh resources to market we need to help uh different parts of the world transition away we need to ensure energy security for our closest allies that we trade with such as in germany and you look at what's going on in the uk and other parts that uh they're forced to now have to restart coal plants i, I think we can all collectively agree coal plants are not what we need to restart in this economy we're dealing with climate change and and it'll look like the federal government has just has has 
put their money where their mouth is when it comes to LNG in terms of the BC side with a kinematic plant that's being they invested into several billion dollars. Uh, they they are they dis, they are clear about wanting to assist with energy supplying the the world with energy. Now it's really like if provinces, federal government, and private business all can work together in a strategic manner and deliver the products in the most sustainable way, but to help our allies transition as well further. The, the world is going to be is transitioning, and LNG is part of that transitionary sort of fuel usage. Uh, there are parts of the world, as I said, like they're using coal and using oil. And like, can we use LNG now? Can we transition to hydro? Can we transition to offshore wind? These are all energy sources that Canada is a leader in or, or, or striving to be a leader in, and we can work towards that. So I think there is work to be done, and it'd be, it'd behoove Premier Smith to find areas of cooperation with the federal government. Because at the end of the day, you can keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting and arguing. But if you don't find any progress, then what are you going to come back to voters with, uh, to your constituents with? Like, hey, I fought, but I didn't get anything. Well, that's not good enough for them at this point. How is she going to be received once the premiers sit down together? And we played the clip of the Prime, or BC Premier Horgan. Uh, but even a guy like Doug Ford here in Ontario, Mohammed, who, let's face it, started talking in a similar fashion when he first became premier. But uh, not too long after that, he developed a rather conciliatory tone with the prime minister. Uh, and, and it's been extremely beneficial. They've cooperated on a number of different projects, not just the COVID protocol, but, but you know, the, the partnering on EVs and so many other manufacturing initiatives, too. Uh, and other premiers who may not disagree or may not agree with the prime minister on so many things uh, have understood that there can has there has to be a business relationship. Uh, is 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 she going to be the one sitting at the end of the table by herself, or is is she going to maybe rethink her position on some of these things when when we talk about uh, the 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 role the federal government has? I don't think she'd be alone. I think uh, she does have an ally in Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, uh, but she could alienate herself. Now, she's going to have to uh, uh, figure out how what she's going to provide as added value um, at the provincial premier's table. Uh, Jason Kenney was trying to push, sort of break down barriers between provinces, particularly for labor mobility for nurses and doctors, which is you know, smart to help with labor, you know, the labor situation for um, medical professionals. Uh, he was leading the charge. Is she going to take up that mantra and push forth on that? That would be interesting to see. Interesting thing to see. But if she goes right into fighting uh, provinces on any sort of climate policy, well, you're going to alienate some of the other provinces that are are leading the charge in Quebec and BC, for example. Now, there's a difference between what Alberta and Ontario look like, right? Ontario voters want Ontario's government to work with the feds and you always had this like counterbalance of conservative liberal always uh, so it it benefited Ford to have a working relationship because every time he was seen to be working cooperatively with uh, the federal government his polls went up when he didn't it went down whereas in Alberta it's a bit different in Alberta there is a, a natural animosity towards the federal government but people still do want things to work. They don't mm -hmm. want this constant adversarial point where like we just never get anything. You know, it's, it's a, it's a wealthy province. It's got a wealth of resources has a diverse community. Like it, there are things it, uh, for Alberta that can benefit the rest of the country and they do benefit the rest of the country. And so uh, I think Albertans just want to feel that they're engaged with Ottawa and it would help 
mend fences, but also make things productive. If Daniel Smith can find areas of collaboration with uh, the prime minister, even Jason Kenney to a small degrees also mm-hmm. found areas of collaboration. And look, they quickly moved on things. Whether it's childcare, whether it's new investments into uh, manufacturing that came to Alberta, transit funding, uh, as well as, you know, the federal government bought TMX to help exactly. get Alberta resources to market. So you can't accuse the federal government of not trying to work in Alberta. It's just where can we find areas of alignment? That's where Daniel Smith will have to figure out because people are, I think, are tired in Alberta of just constantly fighting. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Day one, uh, quite an eventful day for the new premier. Uh, Mohammed, thanks as always for this. Always appreciate your input. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to talk about uh, an ongoing concern, of course, and that is the war in Ukraine. Uh, there have been some horrific developments, of course, we've seen over the last couple of days with the, the, the way the Russians have shelled certain areas and the civilian targets, essentially, that they're going on. And, and there are, at some level, discussions going on about maybe how to end this, and there's some speculation about that. Well, amidst all that, uh, come reports that Elon Musk has had a discussion, at least one discussion, with Vladimir Putin. And uh, according to one source, uh, they talked about possible solutions and a possible end to the war in Ukraine and what Russia would like to get out of that. Uh, Musk has since denied this, uh, but this seems to be some strong evidence that uh, that maybe it did happen. And we have to wonder about Musk's motives and uh, and the relationship, I guess, between Putin and Musk. Anyway, to get into all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Marcus Kolga. Marcus is the director of disinfowatch.org and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Uh, the, the Elon Musk story is, is fascinating in so many different ways. I think uh, for the longest time, Marcus, I think an awful lot of people just kind of looked at Musk like, a, okay, here's a filthy rich eccentric who's a little wacky from time to time and just wants to go in with his friends into space. Uh, but it's becoming more and more clear that this guy has a political agenda too. Well, I don't know whether it's a political agenda or whether it's an out-of-control ego. Uh, I mean, this guy clearly is is now wading into geopolitics. Um, he, for some reason, believes that he can change things um, and impose his views on um, you know entire regions of the world, and certainly on Ukraine. And so the fact that, um, you know, I think Vladimir Putin, and this is one thing that the Russian government and intelligence services have always been very good at, is, is identifying those types of people um, who have large egos. They know how to tap into those egos uh, and manipulate them to their own advantage. And it looks like this is what's happened here if, if these Twitter reports uh, and other reports are true that are coming out of uh, from Ian Bremmer, who tweeted that, that, as you mentioned, uh, Vladimir Putin had, in fact, had this conversation with Elon Musk. Um, what had happened was that he had transmitted uh, Russia's demands, essentially, uh, for uh, ending this war. Uh, they are not unlike those that were transmitted by Russia uh, before the war began. That includes the, um, you know, the demand of the neutrality of Ukraine, uh, the fact that Crimea belongs to Russia, uh, and a redoing, apparently, of these ref, quote-unquote referendums in regions occupied by Russia. All of this plays into Putin's hands. So to have someone uh, with a profile like Elon Musk uh, repeat these on Twitter um, is, is extremely dangerous. Um, you know, and the fact that Elon Musk is now going to be taking over Twitter, you know, this is, 
you know, it's border, uh, borderline national security threat. If you have someone like this, this free speech absolutist, um, which is, you know, one thing. But the fact that he is has become uh, somewhat of, uh, you know, if these were again, if these reports are true, an agent of influence for authoritarians who engage in a violent repression, war crimes, atrocities and genocide. We've got a real problem on our hands. And so, uh, you know, I, I wasn't surprised uh, to see Elon Musk uh, wade into these waters. Um, but the fact that anyone would uh, give him any uh, credence or get, give any of his points any credence uh, is would be, it, it, it is shocking. But you're, you're right. I mean, that seems to be part of the, 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 the mantra that, that Putin has been living by. Uh, if they can find high-profile people that, that they can find uh, to be complicit in, in some of their ideas, uh, they like to, to celebrate that and, and put those people up there. I mean, some uh, yeah. highly prominent people, well, Dennis Rodman, I guess, thought he could hang out with King Jong-un some years ago. And, uh, you know, they just feel that, hey, you know, I'm so famous that they will take me. And uh, you're absolutely right. Even if Musk <laughs> did have a conversation with Putin about space travel, as he says he did, uh, you got to figure that Musk, he's hes not shy that he wouldn't bring this subject up anyway. So it, it seems reasonable that it would be at least part of that conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, again, this is something uh, that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin would, would see the opportunity here and exploit it uh, to, you know, maybe whisper into Musk's ear that he can make a difference in this war. He can uh, help bring about peace by, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, transmitting these uh, these demands to the wider world, uh, absolutely. And, and you're and you're right. I mean, this it's it's sort of funny how uh, a lot of you know, failed actors and such have really uh, been pulled into Vladimir Putin's orbit. Uh, Steven Seagal is a yeah is a classic case where he's you know I mean he's he's like a comic book character. He's uh, uh, you know a, 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 essentially a failed actor, but he, he's been. Uh, uh, taken by the Kremlin, adopted by the Kremlin as one of their own, and uh, he's transported to all all of these occupied territories where, you know, they they film him sort of approvingly nodding at everything that's going on, and he makes these sort of uh, you know very pro-Putin statements, pro-Kremlin statements, suggesting that everything is fine and everything is purely legitimate with what's happening uh, in those territories, and denying any of these war crimes and such. And this is this is just one of the things that uh, one way that the the uh, the Kremlin and, and the Putin regime um, engages in disinformation with the West is by using uh, and exploiting, uh, you know, whether they're washed up celebrities or or people like Elon Musk. Let me ask you about the disinformation policy in the campaign. And and as you say, uh, in a, in an interesting turn of events, it looks like Musk is after all going to bot purchase Twitter. I think it it might actually be part of the terms of of settlement you know, from the lawsuit Twitter was going to bring in. And I will yeah. drop a lawsuit if you end up buying it for the you know, the money that you said you were going to put on the table for us. But you got to figure, and if that does happen, and it looks like it's it is going to happen, Marcus. Uh, one of the first things, if not the first thing, that that, that Musk is going to do is reinstate Donald Trump. Uh, and and that's just going to ramp up the disinformation campaign to God knows what level. Yeah, I you know I, I think that if this does go through, and you're right, it seems like it will go through. Uh, I think at that point, um, a lot of these accounts that have been uh, pushed aside, have been muted by by Twitter for good reason, will be unmuted. And I think that the information chaos, at least in the sh- short term, in the Western democratic world, will 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 intensify and will intensify quite rapidly. Uh, I think that we need to start looking at alternatives. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with free speech. Don't get me wrong. I am a, 
a strong supporter of the freedom of expression, um, to express one's opinion uh, publicly, uh, even if we disagree with it. Uh, but you're right. I mean, some of the, the accounts that I think you're referring to um, have uh, engaged in uh, disinformation, uh, the peddling of conspiracies and such. And this is dangerous. Um, you know, promoting uh, conspiracy theories about uh, minority groups uh, to target uh, political groups and such uh, is 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 truly dangerous. Um, and it's something that needs to be filtered out. It needs to be, uh, you know, self-regulated, ideally. But and and I think that Twitter has been doing actually a very good job, especially during this the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, they've self-regulated. They've really uh, you know, amped up their game and uh, and risen to the challenge. And I think they're doing a very good job. Um, I, I'm afraid that all the good work that Twitter has done over the past uh, 12 months or so will just be forgotten. It'll be pushed aside and it will become the Wild West once again. And that's not good for our democracy. It's not good for our society. And so we really need to start thinking about um, how we respond to that. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of regulating social media platforms. But maybe it'll come to that if uh, if things get as bad as you and I are, you know, uh, presuming that things will get. Yeah, because, I mean, Musk has made no uh, bones about the fact that, you know, he, as you say, he's a free speech advocate. Uh, some would say to the extreme. I mean, he even opposed Twitter, didn't they, when they tried to pull down the uh, the, the posted videos of the uh, the New Zealand mass murderer. I mean, just, you know, it's it's for them to this. It's for the public to decide whether that's bad or, or, or good or whatever the case might be. I mean, basically no rules is, is the way Musk seems to operate like that. And uh, that would be a huge step back for Twitter and for social media in general, I would think. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, he is what is known as a free speech absolutist. He um, he promotes complete free speech. So if if the Russian government wishes to put out a, a completely fabricated video of, you know, some elected officials saying, you know, just with fabricated words in their mouth, with deep fakes and such, he would absolutely support that. Um, but that that is dangerous. And you know, again, we I think these social media companies, just like any media company. Um, they, they have to take some responsibility when it comes to the information that's being spread on their platforms. Some of these social media platforms are doing a much better job as others. As I mentioned, Twitter has done a very good, very good job over the past 12 months. Um, YouTube and Google are taking responsibility. Facebook is, is not doing so well. Um, but taking back, you know, rolling back that self-regulation of those platforms creates more chaos. Uh, and so... You know, I, again, I'm, I'm deeply concerned. I mean, we're already seeing since, uh, you know, 2016, the, the U.S. presidential election, then we've seen an erosion of cohesion within our society and an erosion of trust and a targeted erosion of trust in our democratic institutions, our, um, you know, our professional journalists, elected officials, in our demo core democratic institutions. And that's because of this sort of Wild West uh, on social media, uh, in the information environment. You know, I think we're, we're moving towards cleaning that up. But, you know, again, roll, for Elon Musk to roll back all the progress that we've made, um, it, it threatens to further divide us. Uh, and if, if we continue dividing like that, if we continue this polarization continues, that could really lead to a destabilization of our, literally a destabilization of our democracy and, and a threat to, you know, all of that, the, the core fundamental values in our democracy. 
Marcus, how concerned are you with, with some of these voices that have started to rise? And some of them are celebrities, some of them are media personalities uh, that basically <laughs> have taken Putin's side in this whole situation. Anti-Ukraine rhetoric, uh, pro-Putin rhetoric, uh, people at Fox News. I mean, Tucker Carlson comes to mind as, as one of the yeah. leaders of that, but he's not the only one on that network that's doing that. Uh, and it, it just, it's just for a party that traditionally was all for American values, etc. I mean, Putin was the bad guy up until about eight years ago or seven years ago, uh, now he seems to be their hero. And, and you know, if Musk is successful in doing this and basically saying, look, it, continue what you're doing on Fox, but I'm going to give you an even larger platform, uh, we, you just got to wonder what kind of an impact that's going to have on, on, on geopolitics, for instance. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, in Canada, what we've, what we've also witnessed is that uh, the far right and the far left, you know, you mentioned Fox News in, in the U.S., but the far right and the far left uh, in Canada have also uh, very much, uh, you know, expressed uh, views that would you could I guess you could characterize them as aligning with with Vladimir Putin's views on on Ukraine. Um, you know, and some of these are, you know, on the far left, these are, you know, devout communists who might believe in in what they're saying. They believe that Vladimir Putin and all things that Russia does is 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 good and they dismiss any sort of notions or uh, even evidence of of uh, violations, mass violations of human rights, because they're um, you know political extremists essentially. Um, I'm afraid that there are certain elements on the far right in Canada who are amplifying some of these narratives. They are exploiting uh, rising inflation. They are uh, exploiting Canada's or connecting that with Canada's support for Ukraine, suggesting that the Canadian government is. Um, is intensifying the effects of inflation and such. They're suggesting that rising oil prices have something to do with, uh, you know, Western support for for Ukraine, and they're doing that to score petty uh, political uh, points, and uh, and that's truly unfortunate. Uh, my fear is that when that, you know, that that when mainstream politicians start to um, try to exploit those those positions. That that does erode our support for for Ukraine, which means also an erosion of support for NATO and uh, and Western democracy in general. Um, so that is a a real threat, and it's something that I think that uh, we all need to take a much closer look at. I think that the government needs to start um, looking at some of our allies who have taken a an approach, a whole of society approach to tackling these issues. Uh, you know, they've done it very well in places like Finland and Sweden and such. Um, but yeah, geopolitics does play into these disinformation campaigns on the far right and far left nowadays. And, um, and quite frankly, I'll, I'll just say this as, a, as just a Canadian citizen, that those uh, political uh, activists, uh, certainly those elected officials who do exploit this, um, they should reconsider what they're doing. And, and if they do, do engage in that sort of activity and exploit these, uh, these narratives for their own political gain, shame on them. Um, because they are actively contributing to erosion of cohesion within our democracy, and they they need to stop that sort of thing right away. Well, uh, just to wrap it up, because we're just about our time, though, as uh, Ian Bremner uh, mentioned, who we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, yeah. and of course, the Eurasia Group president, uh, he's, uh, the word of advice from him is just don't take anything Musk says at face value, uh, which which may be the, the criteria that we need to use over everything coming forward on this. Uh, Marcus, always a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much on a very busy day for taking some time for us. Appreciate it. Bill couldn't agree more, and thanks for having me on.
Thank you. Marcus Kolga, the director of disinfowatch.org, and of course, a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been focusing on what's going on in Europe, but on the other side of the world, uh, Canada and Japan have now launched talks aimed at sharing military intelligence as these two countries uh, try countering some of the growing threats from Russia and China. Uh, that's the the headline. Let's uh, delve into that and see exactly uh, what the implications of that are. To do so, we are so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Stephen A. Sedman, who is the uh, Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about the, this relationship and the impact this is having. Look, to be candid about this, Canada has received some criticism in the last little while about uh, not pulling their weight when it came to things like intelligence gathering, etc., with the five eyes. And uh, there seems to be some renewed concern now about what's going on in the Pacific uh, theater, uh, especially with Russia's expansionism in, in Europe and what China seems to be doing in the South China Sea right now. Uh, talk to us about Canada's role and what we should and what we could be doing in that circumstance. Well, Canada is a Pacific country. It's hard for us on the, you know, this far uh, east of, in the country to remember that, but uh, it's a very important part of our country is, is, is the Pacific. And it's also where a lo- the largest percentage of economic activity is in the world these days. And so we have uh, strong interest in the flow of stuff going through the South China Sea, through the Pacific. And so we have strong interest there, but there's been lo- long-term questions about what can we as a country do to make a difference, to, to contribute to peace and security in that area? And the challenge is we don't have the same kind of institutions that we have in Europe. In Europe, we know we fit into NATO. We know what our role is there. We know how to exert influence there. We know how our partners value us there. And there's no such organization in the Pacific. And so we have to work bilaterally, uh, particularly since a lot of our friends don't get along with each other very well. Like South Korea, for instance, and Japan don't get along too well. And so we have to deepen our bilateral relationships. And this is one way to do that, to develop uh, better intelligence ties between Japan and, and uh, Canada. Uh, we have a lot of common interests. There's not that much that we disagree about uh, on the fundamentals between the two countries. You know, when, when our leaders go to China or India, there's a lot of, a lot of friction. Uh, but uh, with Japan, the, there may be sometimes misunderstandings or whatever, but Generally, we have very similar institutions, and we have a pretty similar outlook on on what's going on in, in that part of the world. At, at this stage, given the the, the, the global picture and, and what's happening, uh, how comfortable is Japan uh, being so close <laughs> in proximity to two of these monstrous military giants that both seem to be in expansionist mode, uh, economically and militarily? Well, and you're leaving out the fact that uh, on a regular basis, North Korea sends missiles flying yeah. overhead okay so, there's that too yeah i would say that the japanese are very uncomfortable i think that the race but you know aside from ukraine at this moment in time uh, i would say that either south korea or japan have a pretty good competition for being the most threatened country on the planet again aside from ukraine and this is this has preoccupied them the past five or ten years they've seen china rising china has been making claims on japanese territory uh, that uh, war on Taiwan would be really, really uh, uh, harmful uh, with uh, for Japan. So Japan has been making statements lately about taking sides in that kind of conflict. Um, that the Russians, between the Russians and the Chinese, uh, there's 
the, the Japanese scramble planes at least twice a day to deal with overflights from one of those countries or both every single day. You know how we it makes news when a Russian plane approaches our airspace and we, we turn away with our Nord cooperation in the United States. That's an everyday thing for the Japanese. And again, as I mentioned, North Korea uh, firing missiles and having had developed nuclear weapons, Japan is most seized with this. Uh, but it faces a critical challenge because it has multiple threats and it has a constitution that says they can't have a military. So they have something that they don't call a military, which happens to be one of the world's largest and most advanced militaries in the world. Do they feel alienated there? As you mentioned, uh, on the European side, there is NATO, and there's some commonality there between member nations. Uh, I, I don't know even who could form that kind of an alliance on the Pacific side. Uh, certainly Australia has an interest in what's going on in the South China Sea, and they've expressed that. Uh, Canada, the United States, but uh, with the focus, the global focus right now on Ukraine, uh, does Japan feel as if, hey, what about us? I think that... Uh the Japanese have been very focused on this, and they don't. I don't, I don't think they feel alienated from their allies. Uh, I think they they were concerned when Trump was president, and they were concerned what happens if there's another Trump presidency. I mean, Abe got along very well with Prime Minister Abe, who died, was killed recently, got along very well with Trump. But there was always the concern that uh, the Americans might pull out, given uh, Trump's um, tendencies. But I don't think they feel alienated from the West. I think they, they see common cause. Uh, I think there's been a fair amount of cooperation. There's been a lot more engagement by the Americans, Australia and the Europeans with Japan uh, facing this threat. Uh, I think the pivotal question right now for them really is how to get how to be more cooperative with South Korea, because they have a lot of tensions between the two, but they face exactly the same set, set of threats. And, and that's the, the reality that they're facing. And as you say, with what the Chinese are doing almost on a daily basis now, uh, with missiles flying over Japan from North Korea, and, and as you said, the flights that are happening with uh, the Chinese uh, military uh, in situations like this. So what what is Japan looking for here? When they talk about information and intelligence sharing packs, uh, we get a lot of our information, of course, from the Five Eyes, uh, but there are other sources for this as well. Are they concerned about expansionism here? I mean, I, we've always had a very strong economic relationship with, with Japan, uh, but it seems as if national security is, is starting to, to become a, a much more important and a much more dangerous issue for them right now. What can they get from us? What the, can they learn from us? Well, they're looking for any kind of help. And I think uh, part of this is the two-way thing, which is they're looking to inform us. They're looking to shape our views. And so this intelligence sharing it's not just what kind of info they can get from us, but that they will have a better ability to feed information into our system, which then might cause us to be, you know, you know, see the world the way they see it. So I, I think even the giving information uh, by them to us, because uh, they have uh, obviously a more, well, either more locals will have probably generally more information about what's going on in Asia, and is going to be an advantage not just for us but for them. But we have our source of information. Uh, we can't, just can't hand them over the Five Eyes stuff, but they have intelligence sharing with Australia and the United States. So that's not really what they're looking for from us. They're looking for any little bit more of that information so they can triangulate and have a better uh, picture of what their neighborhood is doing. So it may be that we only add 3% to, of clarity to their picture, but even that is better than not having that. So I think they're looking for whatever they can, and they're also looking to cement the Canadian-Japanese uh, relationship. Uh, which is something they've been working on for quite some time.
Is, is it time for Canada to, to try to establish a stronger footprint in, in the Pacific? Well, we've been doing that. I mean, the challenge is we have a small Navy, and obviously the Pacific is, is really a naval theater more than anything else. And so we don't have that many ships to throw there. And we've been uh, pushed to send more ships to uh, the Baltics to signal our support for, for Latvia and for the Baltics and, and for NATO. But we've been doing things. We've been sending ships through uh, the strait between Taiwan and China, which is something that where we signal our seriousness. And it may not get much attention in the newspapers here, but it certainly gets attention uh, in Beijing. Uh, we've also been flying planes, uh, our um, reconnaissance planes, near North Korea to help enforce a sanctions regime against North Korea. Uh, and that's been very visible to everybody in the neighborhood. So we don't have a lot of assets in terms of the military to throw in the Pacific. And again, the Pacific is a great metaphor for all this because it's a huge ocean. So anything we do is it's really just a drop in the bucket. But the stuff that we've been doing has been high value and it has been noticed. And we do take part regularly in the American-led exercises and Japanese exercises so that we have a fair amount of interoperability in our Air Force and the navies and air forces of the region. So we've been doing a fair amount of stuff. It's just that we have a small military and there's not so much, not much we can do. When Joe Biden uh, took office uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, he singled out China and said that that was the biggest threat to global peace and, and prosperity at that time. Uh, now, since then, of course, Ukraine has happened, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that's changed everybody's focus for however long that's going to last. But while that's happening, uh, talk to us a little bit about the implications of what happens with Ukraine and the Chinese expansionist uh, plans or ideas or, or thoughts about this right now, especially vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, if this does not go well for Ukraine, do, does that give the Chinese uh, an added incentive to maybe go the next step with when it comes to Taiwan? Well, that's the really interesting thing of the past nine months or so is that uh, the Russians have failed miserably against Ukraine. And, and so the question for China is, is Taiwan as ready to fight as the Ukrainians were? And is the situation similar? And this gets to something we call motivated bias, which is the Chinese are probably to learn the lessons they want to learn from Ukraine, uh, not to learn lessons necessarily they should learn. So they may say, well, you, you know, the Taiwanese are weak as compared to the Ukrainians. They haven't really fought a war, uh, whereas the Ukrainians have been fighting for the past eight years. Um, they may think that, well, you know, the United States and, and NATO have been able to resupply uh, Ukraine, but they couldn't resupply Taiwan because we'll just have a naval uh, embargo, a blockade around Taiwan. So they may be saying that there's more options they have. They may also be saying, well, you know, we're not the Russians. We're not nearly as dumb as they are. And so they may rule out the lessons that we could learn from this because the Russians have been so inept uh, and so corrupt in, in their handling of the war that the, the, the Chinese can think that they're better than that. On the other hand, if they're really smart in China, they may go, well, you know, that kind of corruption that develops in authoritarian regimes, hmm, we might have that problem too. Um, on the other hand, the Taiwanese are certainly learning these lessons and learning what it takes to fight a, 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 a major power in the 21st century. And so they're going to arm themselves with the kind of weapon systems that have been very successful. And the Chinese need to learn that this kind of war has a higher level of intensity, a higher price, even if you're good at it, uh, than uh, what they might have been expecting, that Taiwan will not be a walkover, just as Ukraine turned out not to be a walkover. 
but aren't we going to get into the same situation that uh, that Ukraine's in right now, where uh, we can offer visual support, maybe financial support, but uh, but but not military support, and, and, and except for obviously we're supplying them with arms. Uh, Biden has pledged his support for Taiwan. If in fact something like this happens, uh, I guess we have to ask ourselves just what does that entail? Well, that's the the joy of Taiwan is we've had a policy. The, the West, particularly the United States, is a policy of strategic ambiguity <clears throat> and the idea here is to give the chinese enough uncertainty that they won't know what the response will be and that will deter them but biden has been pretty uh forward leading on this and i think he's raising the cost for china that uh an attack on, on taiwan might be different than ukraine because the U.S., through its domestic politics, ever since the fall of China, has had Taiwan has been a major issue in American, the domestic politics of foreign policy. And so he's committing more to Ukraine, to Taiwan that he can, they committed to Ukraine. And so they have to really think that if they start a war with Taiwan, they will be in a shooting war with the United States. Um, and that would be incredibly costly for everybody. So again, he's trying to suggest that the costs are much higher uh, and that the Chinese should be deterred. Chinese might not believe that, or they might be waiting for somebody to replace him, a, a, a Trump or a Tom Hawley or, uh, I'm sorry, Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or some other Republican who, who might uh, not be quite as uh, willing to confront the Chinese. Or perhaps a change of the power structure, of course, within the Congress, too. And that could happen in the next month. We don't know uh, what's going to be happening with that, too. And I think that may have some sort of an impact on what the president could and could not uh, be allowed to do, wouldn't it? Well, it depends. So that the, we have a big question right now about if the Republicans take the House uh, next month. Will that mean that Biden can't sell weapons uh, or give weapons to uh, Ukraine? And that's certainly an issue. On the other hand, Congress has very little power to stop the American president from engaging in violence. That is, uh, setting ships to sea, uh, sending planes in the region, engaging in bombing missions. Uh, that there's been a long fight about whether Congress has the power to stop an American president. And given that the uh, Congress, even if they get a majority in both the House and the Senate, they will not be able to get a, a veto-proof majority to be able to pass resolutions over over uh, Biden's uh, you know, Biden's proposals, or they won't try to be able to restrict him too much. So, the irony is that it's a lot easier to stop the American president from spending money in arms than it is to stop the American president from dropping weapons, dropping bombs in other countries. So, I don't think that uh, Republicans, if we're to get power in both houses, would really be able to stop. Biden, if there was a major crisis uh, between China and Taiwan. Uh, very quickly, I got about a minute left here, if we could. Uh, China does not seem to want to go face to face with the Americans on just about anything. There's a lot of rhetoric goes back and forth, but I, I don't think they want a one on one conflict here. But they do. Uh, tend to poke at the United States through their allies, including Canada. You know, we've seen that happen with, with the two Michaels, although there was another rationale for that as well. But uh, through trade sanctions and things of this nature, would this deal with the Chinese or the Japanese and the Canadians right now about intelligence sharing, is there a concern here about retaliation from either China or Russia or both? For this deal? No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that we already have a lousy relationship with China as it is. They've already threatened us on all other kinds of issues. I don't think this is going to matter that much to them. Uh, 
at, at this point in time. And then for the Russians, I, the Russians are focused on Ukraine. They already, we've already antagonized them enough by what we're sending to, to Ukraine and how much training we're doing of the Ukrainian military, whether that's uh, in Ukraine or I'm sorry, in Poland or in or in the United Kingdom. So I think we've already maxed out our our angering the Russians, and I think that the Chinese are focused on other things. Uh, I'd, I'd love to expand this into the talk about the Arctic and, and, and China yeah, and yeah. Russia's uh, concern in that, but we're out of time. Maybe maybe down the road we can do that. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Stephen Sademan, who is the uh, Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University and also uh, the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, which is very much in play, of course, with what's going on. And and it is a concern, and I know that you know sometimes we, and not just in Canada, but I mean, in the states as well, and in the UK, uh, can kind of get sidetracked. And uh, you know, when I mentioned everybody's attention all of a sudden was diverted to Ukraine, as it should be, uh, of course, because that that's a, a heinous situation. We're seeing some ter- horrific pictures every day about the sort of atrocities that are going on in the battlefield and in the cities in Ukraine uh, by the Russian troops. We get that. But I go back to what we said when Biden took office here, where he said the number one threat right now to global security is China. And uh, I I think he still feels that way. Clearly, he's has diverted his attention to what's going on in Europe right now. But with uh, China, as, as we just talked about uh, with Professor Seidman, uh, basically trying to establish sovereignty over the South China Sea and, and frankly, the South Pacific. Uh, there's an ongoing concern there, but uh, them flexing their muscle and, and what uh, the United States and Canada and the UK, who has an, a, a deep interest in what's going on in the South Pacific, and Canada now being a partner in that as well. So uh, as they say in the business, more to come on this particular story. And we'll continue to follow that for you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.